Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. I'm on the road this week with the Chainalysis team hosting Lynx conferences in Seoul and Singapore. This Public Key episode was recorded a few weeks ago at Lynx New York with my colleague Aaron Plant, who leads our investigations and special projects team. Aaron and I cover a wide range of topics, including the aftermath of a crypto exchange being sanctioned, DeFi platforms as the popular target for crypto theft, and how we might improve consumer protection in Web3. After the episode, if you'd like more on these topics, then mark your calendar for the State of Web3 webinar happening on June 30th at 11 a.m. Eastern. Join us as we break down DeFi, staking, the metaverse, and more with Chainalysis economist Ethan McMahon. URL to register can be found in the show notes. We're recording live for the first time in the history of the podcast from the Chainalysis Links Conference on site in New York City today. On this episode, I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Aaron Plant. Aaron, it's great to see you. It's great to be here, Ian. Uh, it's nice to see you in person in New York, even though we live a couple miles from each other in DC. We have we, to come to New York to see each other. That's though. right. We still, <laughs> we've still never managed to get that coffee that we had scheduled on the books months ago. You know, for the audience uh, listening out there, I think you have one of the most interesting jobs at Chainalysis. Your team gets to do some of the most exciting work I've ever seen in my career. Maybe share a little bit of background, what your organization does, and uh, your your role at Chainalysis. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I, I think I'm very lucky to have the job that I have. So I, I head up our investigations and special programs team. It's our global team of investigators. We are 92 now. Amazing. Speaking 16 languages based all around the world, working with government agencies, law enforcement partners, private sector businesses, helping to fight crypto crime and working with them on their investigations of crypto-related crime. That's, that's incredible. So when we read a headline about a major hack or potentially some funds being recovered, good chance you're, someone on your team's been involved. We love amazing headlines from all parts of the world about some, some ring that was brought down or some funds that were seized or some bad guys that were arrested, and it's great. I know our comms team is eternally frustrated that most of the work that you do remains quiet, secret. It's true. It's true. It's hard sometimes to be the behind the scenes. I think when I tell people that we're 92 people, they, they're blown away. That's a surprise <laughs> even to me, actually. I, I work at the company. I had no idea. That's how secret it is. One of the questions I've started asking all my guests is crypto origin story. When and where, how did you get into this crazy world of cryptocurrency? Yeah. So I actually bought my first Bitcoin in 2011 off of a guy on Craigslist. <laughs> this sounds like a good story. Keep going. I think a lot of people listening might be too young to even know what Craigslist is, but it is a somewhat shady online postings of advertisements and somebody was selling Bitcoin and I, I wrote him a check, which also dates me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a higher likelihood people listening know what Craigslist is than know what a check is. <laughs> it's a probably a very good point. So I wrote him a check to buy his Bitcoin and put them on my old hard drive. And they sat there in Bitcoin Core wallet for, for a long time. That's still where they're sitting in Bitcoin Core. <laughs> Yeah, I think I did what everybody did in 2018 or so when Bitcoin finally had some value and scrambling around and trying to find that hard drive and remembering your password and doing all of that. 
luckily I, I had all of it written down and stored my brain somewhere and um, yeah, I was able to find it. But what brought me to Chainalysis was actually a podcast. <laughs> Perfect. I, I knew was, this was good for somebody. <laughs> I was, uh, I have a, my whole background's in traditional financial crime investigations. I've been doing that around the world for over 15 years, working in China and Africa and the Middle East. And I was actually in a car in Africa, driving to a customer, listening to a podcast and heard Jonathan Levin, one of our founders, talking about an investigation that he was working on. And this was back in 2018. It was on a podcast called Reply All, one of my favorite podcasts. And um, he was talking about Chainalysis, which, you know, at the time was a small company. And that's what introduced me to Chainalysis. And as I was looking for the next path in my career from traditional financial crime investigations to more crypto crime investigations, I sought out Chainalysis and I joined about two years ago. The stars aligned. That's the amazing. The stars aligned, yeah. What a, what a great story. Uh, Reply All is also a great podcast. It's a good one. Yeah, I enjoy that one. <laughs> So your story uh, is incredible there. You're a crypt, not only a crypto OG, but you actually remembered your passphrase. So those Bitcoin are not amongst the lost. They're not amongst yeah. the lost. I, I actually had my key phrase written down in my Google Drive. <laughs> Perfect. So. That's not great operational it's security. Not. It's uh, not at for all. For anyone wondering, don't do that. It's exactly what they tell you not to do. Yeah. But thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, I think what's more astounding is that the old Mac computer yeah, hard survived. drive yeah. booted up yeah. to be able to get these off of there. There's definitely some cases that we can't talk about in this podcast. Summarize or talk about the types of maybe trends that you've been seeing across all the investigations you're working in. Like, it seems like there's been an evolution of criminal activity over the last couple of years uh, in and around crypto. Is, it, is that an accurate summary? Absolutely. When I joined, we were really looking at payments that were made by crypto for things um, that are just terrible in nature, like terrorism, financing, and child sex abuse material, and darknet market activity as a whole, you know, whether it's drugs or weapons. Um, but you were looking at payments, you know, crypto payments that were illicit in nature. And that's largely what we, what we started out, my team, when I joined uh, investigating. And then we've really seen while that criminal activity still exists and we still investigate that heavily, we've seen a large emergence in cyber-related threats and cyber-related crime. So you know that comes in about a year and a half ago in a really strong way with ransomware. And then the Colonial Pipeline ransomware incident really raised it from a bit of a nuisance that companies like Chainalysis were trying to tackle to a major national security threat that every company and government agency is looking to tackle. And similarly, with the hack of the Ronin Bridge, that's part of the Axie Infinity gaming platform, that was a, a similar incident where it raised North Korea hacking and state-sponsored hacking in the same way that Colonial Pipeline raised ransomware as a threat. And now the, the North Korean hacking and state-sponsored hacking of crypto platforms is, is very much in the eyes of national security. We heard from Superintendent Adrian Harris this morning, who uh, runs the New York Department of Financial Services, and she made a similar comment. She said, from our perspective, cybercrime and cryptocurrency, they've intersected. Previously, the, when we looked at financial regulation and kind of market risk, those were two opposite ends of the building. And all of a sudden, it, it's now intersected. 
So it sounds like you're seeing the same thing from, from your perspective on the investigative side. Absolutely. I mean, cryptocurrency is unique in that it's both a tool and a tactic for crime. So it's often what a criminal is trying to gain. So they're trying to steal cryptocurrency. They're trying, you know, ransomware attacks. They're trying to get illegal or illicit cryptocurrency. But it's also a tool. It's what is being passed between illicit actors to pay for things like malware on malware forums and pay for bulletproof hosting and buy uh, the domains that are are launching these attacks. So it's unique in that it's act, it's the actual currency yeah. and it's also the way that the, the marketplace is, is happening. One of the other things that was interesting about that and it kind of played out over the course of last year, we heard from OFAC this morning, Andrea Gacki mentioned some of the, the sanctions designations they had made and they touched on an organization called SUEX and a related company, ChadX. They were kind of the laundering operation, kind of the over-the-counter over trading desk is maybe a, a better way to yeah. describe them. For a number of these organizations that were operating different cybercrime schemes and ransomware attacks. OFAC has had some amazing wins in the last six months, yeah. starting with the designation of SUEX and then shortly after that, Chadex. We were watching a large amount of ransomware funds flow through those OTCs, those over-the-counter services, and that became a huge cash-out point for illicit funds. So ultimately, criminals, ransomware criminals, all criminals are looking to get paid for their activity. And so they want to hit some kind of service where they can convert that crypto to cash or buy something with that crypto. And that off-ramp point is a, a weak spot and it's a, a risky spot for them to, to cash out, but they were leveraging SUEX and Chadex to do yeah. that. OFAC made that really strong designation and basically shut down two really popular places for these criminals to cash out. Yeah. So every time we see that happen, we, we see incredible on-chain activity happen because you basically close the door on two points that criminals can get paid and you see just funds moving around in a chaotic way. They're looking for other avenues to another off-ramp to be able to get paid. And some of these funds, there's actually been some successful recovery on, right? So when they lose these cash out points, they're going to ones where there's less certainty they're actually going to be able to convert to fiat, right? And in those cases, the exchanges are collaborating with law enforcement and they're actually able to make a seizure and a recovery. It's true. The collaboration between the exchanges, law enforcement, and chain analysis has been astounding and just improving over the years. There's a sentiment from early days of crypto of kind of government is bad, regulation is bad, oversight is bad, everything is decentralized and fully permissionless. The downside of that is, hey, if, if funds are stolen or lost, you've got no help. You've got nowhere to turn. I think at the scale and magnitude that crypto is now operating and the number of people kind of participating in the ecosystem, like that sentiment's sort of untenable. We've heard kind of a theme of the conference this week has been good regulation, collaboration between crypto industry and government, both on the regulatory and the law enforcement side. Like it's net good for consumers, retail investors, everybody that's participating will allow uh, this ecosystem to keep growing and, and save people from getting robbed by you know, very sophisticated criminals behind it, right? Absolutely. I mean, y you can have that view until your funds are stolen from a platform yeah. or your DAP is hacked and your protocol's hacked and you lose all your investor money. Without that collaboration and without that oversight, that 
just wouldn't be possible to stop. The Web3 ecosystem as a whole is, is so different from traditional financial systems that there is no comparison. In the Web3 ethos of this community-focused exchange of information and working together and whether it's through innovation or stopping crime or, you know, coming together to discuss regulations, it's necessary for all parties to be involved in that conversation. And the only way to, to build safety in this economy is to bring some of those regulations and bring some of that security and, and do it in a, in a different way. Do it in a Web3 way. It's not, it's not going to be the same as traditional finance. Your team has unveiled a, a new offering to help solve problems in this space, crypto incident response, which enables organizations who are concerned about compromise or a hack or a theft can actually retain, retain your team's services, right? Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I think it was an inevitable need that we we decided to, to really formalize so that we could act very quickly when these things occur. And when we look back on the last year, our crime stats say that $3 billion was stolen from crypto platforms. Incredible. Chainalysis was engaged to investigate over $2 billion of that stolen funds. So we are already deeply involved in all of this all of these hacks. The first few hours after hack are just crucial time because we call it the surge period where the funds are moving really quickly and you don't want to lose sight of them. And so when we get contacted by a company that's had some kind of security breach, it's usually, you know, Friday night or over the weekend or, you know, 2 a.m. And we're trying to get, they're trying to get their legal team and we're trying to get our legal team to come to some kind of non-disclosure because ultimately we're going to have to use sensitive techniques and some of our proprietary tools to be able to trace these funds. Yeah. And so everyone's trying, our lawyers are trying to come to some kind of contractual agreement and we lose critical hours, yeah. sometimes days. Yeah, the clock uh, is ticking. The clock is ticking and ultimately you have to be, be ready to jump in. So what we really wanted to do was set up a service where we're on call for them. So if yeah. there's an incident, our team, whether it's 2 a.m. or Sunday morning, whether it's in APAC or the U.S. is ready to jump in. Yeah. We have investigators around the world, so we're able to provide 24-7 coverage and monitoring of funds because someone's not looking at that at two in the morning. By the time 8 a.m. came around and people woke up. You've missed your opportunity. I had a bit of a personal experience with this a couple weekends ago. There was a platform compromise and one of our colleagues got a Twitter DM from somebody involved and he showed it to me and said, what should we do? And I kind of assumed it was a scam or a fake, right? The, the attack turned out to be legitimate, but I was like, why would they approach you via Twitter DM? And obviously they were urgently trying to get in touch with us, like you said. Mm -hmm. Time was of the essence, and it turned out to be fully legitimate, right? And I think we're now engaged, but in an ideal world, that relationship would have already existed. You know, the message would have gone directly into your team as opposed to a, a Twitter DM through somebody who's kind of publicly known to be associated with Chainalysis. That's not the most expedient path. So. Exactly. And so many of our requests to assist come in through Twitter DM or yeah. LinkedIn DM. That is how it comes through. And at least with this, even if it's a company that we're not engaged with already, we now have the contractual paperwork in place that makes it easy to, yeah. to happen quickly as yeah. well. We, we've yet to investigate a hack that doesn't use every single sensitive 
tool that Chainalysis has. That's where we really are able to provide the most support and the most important support is to be able to trace funds through all levels of complex obfuscation and track down the hacker and the criminal in the best way we can. So having these in place, we'll be able to jump in quickly. Yeah, that's amazing. I wanted to shift uh, and talk about a different topic. Our CEO, Michael Groninger, uh, in his opening keynote, one of the key themes that he mentioned was this topic of national security. And you, you've mentioned North Korea a couple times. My layperson observation is crypto's gotten big enough where it's very interesting if you're a nation state looking, stolen funds are suddenly meaningful, right? It can have a positive net impact on an economy the size of North Korea. That's how big crypto's gotten. And they seem to have trained, you know, professionalized cyber criminals to attack the ecosystem. Is that, have I followed that along correctly? You have. They have incredibly powerful hacker cells that they have located in around Asia. So they're located in places where they can engage in Western society and Western communications, and they're highly trained hackers. And they deploy these very methodical attacks where they leverage social engineering. They'll sometimes look to get hired into businesses. There was just or, an advisory about this, right? Like be on the alert for potential North Korean operatives applying for jobs in tech, right? Exactly. It's exactly. Incredible. It is. And it's become a huge issue. We've seen them steal over $2 billion from crypto platforms, which is a huge amount of money. That goes back to a sanctioned country that's, you know, they're not buying food for their people with that money. Yeah. So it's a huge national security risk. And it's also just a big risk for the ecosystem as a whole. It yeah. creates a, a huge threat that's difficult to tackle. Crypto businesses aren't large in nature, don't tend to be large in nature. So we don't have have the massive cybersecurity teams that large tech companies like Microsoft and Google and others would have. So you're relying on maybe one or two security personnel in these businesses to protect themselves against a very sophisticated North Korean state-sponsored hacking organization. So that's not an easy endeavor. It's a high-value soft target, I think, is the terminology of the industry, right? Yeah, exactly. And we've seen North Korean hacks escalate immensely. You know, they used to just deploy the, the phishing scams and steal money that way. Now they're going after code exploits and flash loans and other ways to attack DeFi platforms. They've really shifted into crypto. Previous Lazarus Group hacks of banks and other attacks to steal money weren't as successful as, as crypto hacks have been. We had uh, investigative journalist Jeff White on a recent episode of the podcast. He hosts his own podcast called Lazarus Heist, and it's an amazing uh, recount of how Lazarus Group was formed. I learned today, though, that they're they're also called the Guardians of Peace. Uh, <laughs> if you visit their Wikipedia page, of they've course got, they are. Yeah, yeah. It just but, says they're the Democratic Republic of North Korea. <laughs> that's right. They're taking children basically out of high school who are strong at math and putting them through an intensive computer science curriculum, training them to join this organization. And then, as you said, you know, in some cases, they're moving cells around the world. They move to Singapore. They get a great job. They All their friends are in tech spaces. It's a very sophisticated and scary threat, especially because it's attacking crypto businesses so indiscriminately right now. Crypto businesses need to come together to try to fight it, but also looking to the big tech companies like Google and Microsoft and other tech companies to, to also combat this threat. That's actually my question is if 
a listener is working at a crypto business today, this is probably already on their mind. What are some steps that you think they should should be taking or could take in order to uh, be better positioned to defend or recover in the worst case scenario if, if one of these uh, incidents happens? To be proactive about it, if you're DeFi, have your code audited, look for potential vulnerabilities, look to potentially engage with a company that, that provides those services to have that code looked at, get involved in chain analysis community. So if there is a possible, you know, we hope there's not an incident. If there's an incident, then we're able to jump in right away and, and try to recover the funds. Incidents aren't always North Korea. We we always hope that, you know, it's some 19-year-old hacker who stumbled upon a vulnerability and is willing to return the funds for a 5% bug bounty or something like that. So um, time is of the essence in that sense too, where we want to help to find out who's behind the attack because yeah. it is a big change in how you proceed if it's somebody looking for a bug bounty versus North Korea. You're going to go down a whole different path. <laughs> yeah, and, and engaging with the community and exchanges and other crypto businesses to really push on this message. And also government, you know, looking to the, the government, like OFAC, to continue yeah. sanctioning these bad actors and continue sanctioning addresses that are associated with this type of crime. And we do look towards the the big tech community too. You know, we yeah. we have relationships with big tech companies and we are actively engaging with them and, and trying to also get them looking at this threat space as well. I remember last year we collaborated with Google on takedown of this Gloop-Tiba organization. Do you want to share some of the details of that engagement? I found that one fascinating. Yeah, so Google really wanted to to show that they were tackling cybercrime and there was a botnet that was particularly large and damaging to their customers and Google themselves. And this botnet's called Glooptiba. It was unique in that it was leveraging the blockchain to communicate. And so within a Bitcoin transaction, there's a field called the op return field. And it's essentially a memo field of a transaction. There were three Bitcoin wallets that were hard coded in the malware. And when transactions were made between those three Bitcoin wallets, they would encrypt a message in the op return field. So the malware was scanning the Bitcoin blockchain at all times, looking for transactions between those addresses. And when it saw a transaction between those addresses, it would read the message encoded an op return, and it would adjust the code accordingly. <laughs> so. It would repoint the infected host to a different command and control infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Which so, is wild because that's the normal takedown method is once you locate the command and control host, you take those offline, even if the malware is still running on a machine, it's sort of headless at that point. There's exactly. nobody directing it to do anything. Exactly. And, and in this case, they could repoint the command and control infrastructure. You couldn't take down the Bitcoin blockchain. And so anybody that took down the current command and control host, they, they could just, just issue another Bitcoin one. transaction and bring up a new one. Exactly. So we were working with them for, for a long time to monitor the transactions, get ahead of the, the messages and sinkhole the servers that were, were running them. And then at the same time, looking to identify who was behind the botnet themselves, because there are a lot of ways that with Bitcoin transactions, we can help to identify who might be in control of the botnet. And in this case, it was Russian hackers. Well, I think we could talk for hours. We'll I'm have sure to have we you. Could. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on in a, on a future episode, but this has been a ton of fun. Thank you for joining me. It has been fun. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Here's something to consider while you wait for our next one. Since launch in 2019, the Bitcoin blockchain has been forked many times. Often as different parts of the community disagreed about how to improve the performance of the network. Most of these forks you've likely never heard of. Anyone remember Bitcoin XT? It was the first fork launched back in 2015. What about Bitcoin Classic or Bitcoin Unlimited? Two forks which launched to short-lived popularity in 2016. The most successful fork has been Bitcoin Cash, which launched in 2017 and for some time was among the most valuable altcoins. Today it sits just above $2 billion in value. Finally, if you want to get smarter on Web3, head down to the URL in the show notes to find our recent blog about the DeFi ecosystem. And for even more, sign up for the full Web3 report that will be published later this month.